0: Wonderful, wonderful singing and such a wonderful, wonderful hymn to the praise of King Jesus. If you would, return in your Bible to Psalm 27. And this morning, I want to bring my message from that particular text. There was a time when preachers had very long titles to their messages that laid out in full their thesis statement... And I'm following that pattern again this morning. The title of my address is The Lord is My Light and My Salvation, a wonderful missionary promise that sustained Darlene Dybler rose through many trials and tribulations as she served King Jesus among the nations. I begin with a quote. Remember one thing, dear. God said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And those words were spoken on March the 13th, 1942, and would be the last words that Darlene Divler Rose would ever hear from her husband Russell as they were being separated permanently in Japanese prison camps during World War II. She was a young missionary in her early 20s. She did not even have a chance to say goodbye to her husband. In fact, in her own words, she says the following of that heartbreaking day, Everything had happened so fast and without the slightest warning. Russell had said he will never leave us nor forsake us. No? What about now, Lord? This was one of those times when I thought God had left me that he had forsaken me. I was to discover, however, that when I took my eyes off the circumstances that were overwhelming me, over which I had no control, and I looked up, my Lord was there. Standing on the parapet of heaven, looking down. Deep in my heart, he whispered, I'm here, even when you don't see me. I'm here. Never for a moment are you out of my sight. It's not surprising to learn that Psalm 27 was a favorite of Darlene Dybler. And it became increasingly so during her four years of imprisonment for being both a missionary and also an American. It is a hymn of two very distinct parts a hymn of adoration, verses 1 through 6, and a hymn of lament in verses 7 through 14, written by King David. It instructs us on how it is that we are to seek and find the Lord, especially. When, as verse 3 says, an army is encamped against me and war rises against me. And as verse 12 says, when false witnesses rise against us and they breathe out violence. I'm going to break our psalm down into a fourfold movement verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 12, and 13 and 14. And in these four movements, there are four truths I will share with all of us to contemplate on this morning. Number one, the Lord saves and delivers, verses 1, 2, and 3. Secondly, the Lord protects and lifts up, verses 4 through 6. Thirdly, the Lord hears and guides, verses 7 through 12. And finally, the Lord sustains and strengthens, verses 13 and 14. First of all, then, we see in the first three verses that we can be confident that the Lord will save and deliver. Uh, This psalm begins with a word of exclamation, a word of confidence in the saving power of the Lord. The Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? It's interesting to note that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, translates the word salvation as savior. The Lord is my light and my savior. And since the Lord is indeed our light and our salvation, David can say, first of all, of whom shall I fear? He is after all the stronghold, the refuge, and the strength of my life, and therefore of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, Verse 1 is a beautiful example of Hebrew synonymous parallelism where the second line reinforces the first. But it is also a great missionary hymn as well because it gives a word of promise and a word of confidence to those who take the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ around the globe into difficult and and dangerous places. Sometimes the opposition is intense and even life-threatening. Of course, we know that the promise of verse 1 of Psalm 27 finds its fulfillment ultimately in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who during the Feast of Tabernacles stands up and in John chapter 8 and verse 12 boldly declares, I am the light of the world. And then he moves into verses two through three and begins to describe conflict and opposition, those that he refers to in verse two as evildoers, adversaries, and foes. In verse three, the psalmist David talks about an army encamping against him and war rising up against him. In fact, he says that these adversaries and evildoers, they assail me. He says they eat up, they seek to devour my flesh. And then he speaks to the fact that they have surrounded him on every side. There is no avenue of escape. And yet, look at what he says at the end of verse 3. And yet, I will be confident. And why is it that he is confident? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 2. It is they who will stumble and fall. In other words, the enemies that come against me will be defeated, not by me, but by my God. The adversaries who seek to come against me will be taken down by my light and by my Savior. No matter what may come against me, David says, My God, He is capable of handling them all. Darlene Dybler needed a psalm like Psalm 27 throughout much of her life. She was actually born as Darlene Mae McIntosh on May the 17th, 1917. At the tender age of nine, she put her faith and trust in Jesus. And then the next thing is absolutely remarkable. At the age of 10, she committed her life to be a missionary. How many of us today would trust our children at the age of 10? I have a granddaughter, Maddie, who is 10. Could I trust her to make such a life-altering, life-shaping decision at that tender age? I've repeatedly said... Uh, I don't think it's ever too young to commit your life to Christ. I don't ever think it's too young to even commit your life to vocational service and to Christian mission. She made this commitment at the age of 10, and she never, ever moved away from it throughout the totality of her life. In fact, she writes of that particular night, I made this promise to Jesus, Lord, I will go anywhere with you no matter what." it cost. How could that little girl have ever known what indeed our Lord had in store for her in terms of cost? Darlene would marry a pioneer missionary to Southeast Asia named Russell Daimler on August the 18th, 1937. She was all of 19 years of age. He was 12 years her senior. But reflecting back upon that particular moment in her life, she again would write, my ignorance of the future held no cause for anxiety, for my spirit witnessed within me that God was and would be in control. They sit, spent six months in uh, church meetings in North America and then later six months of language study in Holland. And then they returned to the interior of New Guinea where Russell was working already as a pioneer missionary. In fact, they would accompany, or Darlene would accompany her husband into the jungles of New Guinea where there had been a mission uh, station established among a previously unevangelized Stone Age people. In fact, This particular people group was not even known to exist until just a couple of years earlier. Not surprisingly, Darlene was the first white woman that these particular folks ever saw, and yet immediately they fell in love with her and she deeply fell in love with them. But it would be just shortly thereafter that World War II would break out in that part of the world, of course, beginning in 1941. And by 1942, the Japanese had begun their assault on that part of the world and were moving rapidly throughout the islands. Even though Russell and Darlene could have left in plenty of time and returned to America, they, along with many other of their missionary companions, chose to stay. History later records that 10 Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries and one of their children would die in captivity during the war. The Japanese initially placed them under house arrest and then eventually they separated them into different prisoner of war camps, putting the men in one place and putting the children in another. Again, how could this little girl of 10 who pledged her life to missions have ever known that this is what it would cost her. And yet she would find out in all of this that God was her light and her salvation. She would learn through all of this that God would sustain her, that he would never forsake her, that he would never ever leave her side. And in due time, he kept his word. He would make her enemies stumble and fall. Number two, we can be confident in the Lord that he will both protect us and that he will also lift us up. Beginning in verse four, David expresses, what I would pray is the heart's desire of all of us in this room. He does so in an affirmation. One thing I have asked of the Lord and that will I seek after. Well, what is it that you will seek after, David? He responds, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What he is basically saying is, I long to be found in God's presence, wherever that might be. If you look on through verses 4 through 6, you'll see that he discovers being in the presence of the Lord in terms of the temple in verse 4, in terms of a shelter in verse 5, and in terms of a tent or a tabernacle in verse 5, and also in verse 6. In other words, he is saying the most important thing. The essential thing that matters and rises above all others is that I would be in the very presence of the Lord, beholding his beauty and pursuing him wholly and completely. I long to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord as I seek him in his temple. I long to be hidden in his shelter, especially in the day of trouble. I long to be concealed under the cover of his tent, and I long for my God to lift me up on the place of safety, to lift me up high upon a rock. In other words, to see the beauty of the Lord, as one man said, is to see his glory, to know his love, to enjoy his presence as Father and Savior and Protector and Sustainer. And as I just noted, David said, I saw this as the Lord hid me in his shelter in the day of trouble, as he concealed me under the cover of his tent, and as he lifted me high up on a rock of safety and security. Well, then we see very clearly in verse six that there's only one rightful response to this kind of God who loves us and delivers us and preserves us and protects us in this kind of a way. He says, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent the following things. Sacrifices, number one. Shouts of joy, number two. I will sing to the Lord, and I will make melody to the Lord. You know it's easy, isn't it, to sing and shout and rejoice and even sacrifice to the Lord when everything is good and everything is going okay. It's altogether different to sing and shout and rejoice and sacrifice when you're going through days of darkness When you're going through times where the floodwaters are rising above, almost past the nose now, and you can hardly breathe, and you're almost incapable of taking a breath. I don't think anything illustrates this better in the life of Darlene Dibler than on that particular day when she was informed that her husband, Russell, had died elsewhere in a Japanese prison camp. And in fact, the day she learned of it, she also learned that he had been dead for more than three months. Listen to how that particular event unfolded on a fateful evening in November 1944. Darlene was informed by a friend that Russell had died having been very ill for some time. In fact, he had been dead for three months by the time the news reached her. In her own words, she responded by saying, I was stunned. My husband was dead. He had been dead for three months. It was again one of those moments when I felt that the Lord had left me. He had forsaken me. My whole world fell apart. In my anguish of soul, I looked up, my Lord, and he was there. I cried out, but God, and immediately he answered, my child, did I not say that when thou passed through the waters, I would be with you, and through the floods, they would not overflow thee? And in fact, what we learn in the life of this missionary is many others, and what we also learn as we've been taught well by Nick Ripkin uh, in his book, The Insanity of God, those who find themselves in persecution, those who find themselves being tortured, those who find themselves in prison are usually sustained by three things. They're sustained, number one, by prayer They are sustained, number two, by memorized Scripture because most of the time their Bible is denied them. And then number three, they are sustained by the songs that they learned and memorized growing up in the community of faith as those songs were taught them and as they would memorize them. In fact, Darlene would later spend time in solitary confinement under a a capital crime punishment watch, and yet she could write these things about her time there. Much time was passed reading scripture, talking about her past. Starting with letter A, I would begin a verse that began with that letter, and then on through the rest of the alphabet. I've often wondered what did she do when she got to the letter X, but I just have left that off to the side, but I've always been curious about that. I also discovered that most of the songs we had sung when I was a little girl were still hidden in my heart, though I had not consciously memorized many of them. As a child and young person, I had had a driving compulsion to memorize the written word. In the cell, I was grateful now for those days in vacation Bible school when I had memorized many single verses, complete chapters, and psalms, as well as whole books Of the Bible. In the years that followed, I reviewed the scriptures often, and the Lord fed me with the living bread that had been stored against the day when fresh supply was cut off by the loss of my Bible. He brought daily comfort and encouragement, yes, and joy to my heart through the knowledge of His Word. And yet, on this particular day, something happens that again I find utterly providential and the amazing way that our God works. Because after being informed that her husband was dead, Darlene Dibler was invited to the commander of the prison camp, a uh, Mr. Yamachi, to come to his office where she was to meet with him. You have to understand that the Mr. Yamachi was a very harsh, hard, brutal, and cruel man. In fact, he had beat a man to death in a previous prison camp before he was assigned to the, this particular one where he oversaw women and children. As she came into his office, he invited her uh, uncharacteristically to sit down. And then the following conversation took place as she recalled it. John Jadibler, which is what the Japanese refer to as a missus. John Jadibler, I want to talk with you, he began. This is war. Yes, Mr. Yamachi, I understand that. What you have heard today, women in Japan have heard. Yes, sir, I understand that too. You are very young. Someday the war will be over and you can go back to America. You can go dancing, you can go to the theater, marry again, and forget these awful days. You have been a great help to the other women in the camp. I ask of you, don't lose your smile. And then she responded, Mr. Yamachi, may I have permission to talk to you? He nodded, and he sat down. Mr. Yamachi, I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may never have heard. I learned about him when I was a little girl in Sunday school back in Boone, Iowa in America. His name is Jesus, and he's the Son of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. She then recalls, God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. Tears started to course down his face. I told him, Jesus died for you, Mr. Jamachi, and he puts love in our hearts even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you. Mr. Jamachi, maybe God brought me to this place and time just to tell you that he loves you. Now remember she did that on the day she learned of her husband's death. She then recalls Mr. Yamachi uncharacteristically jumped from his chair and left the room in tears. She respectfully waited and then quietly left the room when she realized that he would not return. The God who saves and delivers, who protects and lifts up was there, and he was working more than we could have ever imagined as we will see at the end of our story. Number three, we can be confident the Lord will hear and that he will guide. There's a radical mood change in Psalm 27 between verse 6 and verse 7, causing some scholars to even think that there are two separate psalms, but there are many good reasons literarily and rhetorically and even content-wise to affirm the unity of the psalm. In a real sense, verses 7 through 14 provide the context for which verses 1 through 6 arose. And here's basically the argument David makes. Our God is a promise-keeping God, and therefore we can rejoice and rest in that. And so David will go on now and recount several <clears throat> particulars where we can always count on the Lord to keep his word. He begins by telling us that the voice that shouts and sings to him in worship in verse 6 can be confident that the Lord will hear that same voice when we pray. Look at verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said to me, seek my face, and my heart says to you, your face do I seek. I believe seeking uh, speaking to the Lord means seeking the Lord, and what David does in verse four, we see he is instructed to do here in verse seven, and also in verse eight. Furthermore, David then complements his request in verse five, uh, verse eight, with four negatives followed by a word of hope in verse nine. Look at it; it's very clear. Hide not number one your face from me. Turn not your anger away, uh, your servant away in anger. Number two, oh, you have been my help. Cast me not, number three, off. And number four, forsake me not. Why? Because you are indeed, as I affirmed in verse one, you are the God of my salvation." And then he says in verse 10, others will forsake me. In fact, it gets deeply personal. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord acting as an adoptive parent will take me in. Uh, Whether they forsook him in a literal sense or they forsook him through death, we cannot be certain. But he says when everything is said and done, The only person that I can trust from beginning to end is the Lord. The only person I can be confident in that will be with me as a child and as an adult and at my death is the Lord. And then he moves to ask the Lord to instruct him in verse 11, where he says, teach me your way, O Lord. Secondly, lead me on a straight or a level path because my enemies would certainly knock me off the path. And number three, using again a parallel thought, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. And this is so relevant for Darlene DiBler, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they indeed are breathing out against me. They breathe against me violence. I like the way that uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse show my enemies whose side you are own. Don't throw me to the dogs. Those liars who are out to get me, filling the air with their threats. On May the 12th, 1944, the Kempitai, the Japanese Gestapo, came for Darlene Dybler and removed her from the women's children's prison camp and took her to a place of solitary confinement and maximum security. And as I said earlier, they also took away her Bible. As she was led into her prison cell, she noticed the writing above the cell in Indonesia, quote, this person must die. And she recognized immediately that she had been assigned to death row and that she was to face trial and certain death by being beheaded. She says in her autobiography, I sank to the floor. Never had I known such terror. And so she began to pray, "O oh God, whatever you do, make me a good soldier for Jesus Christ. She then adds, suddenly I found myself singing a song that I had learned as a little girl in Sunday school. There are those songs again. Fear not, little flock, whatever your lot, he enters all the rooms. The doors being shut, he never forsakes. He never is gone. So count on his presence from darkness till dawn, only believe, only believe. All things are possible, only believe. And she would write of that experience so tenderly. My Lord wrapped his strong arms of quietness and calm about me. I knew, I love this, I knew they could lock me in. But I also discovered they could not lock my wonderful Lord Jesus out. Jesus was there with me in the cell. Listen to her circumstances during these days. She was kept for weeks in a cell about six feet square and had only a small amount of rice to eat each day. She spent a great deal of time killing mosquitoes, saying, quote, I was tortured by hordes of them at night. They clung to the wall too full of my good red blood to do anything else. Frequently, she was taken to an interrogation room where two Japanese officers, she called one the brain and the other the interrogator, would accuse her of spying, of having a radio, of getting messages to the Americans, of knowing Morse code. They said they had absolute unequivocal proof of her treachery. Of course, she would deny this, and in the process, they would take a bamboo pole and strike her at the base of her neck and also at her forehead just above her nose. There were times she writes, I was certain they had broken my neck. She often walked around for days with two black eyes. I find this amazing. Her beautiful dark black hair turned gray and white. She was 26 years old, by the way. But bloodied but unbowed, as she said, I never wept in front of them. But when I went back to my cell, I would weep and pour out my heart to the Lord. And when she would finish, she would hear him whisper, My child, my grace is sufficient for you. Not was sufficient, not shall be sufficient. It is sufficient for you. The Kempitai said that they did not believe anything she said. They said that they had sufficient proof to bring the death sentence against her. She indeed was condemned without any formal trial and set to be beheaded as an American spy. Again, in her autobiography, she talks about how it was that God sustained her as she prepared for the ordeal she now faced. Listen to this, and I quote, two days before I was brought to the prison, the Lord had laid it on my heart to memorize a poem by Annie Johnson Flint. Now I knew why. After drying the tears from my face and mopping the tears from the floor with my skirt, I would sit up and I would sing. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace." When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day hath done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power no bounty known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth, and He giveth, and He giveth again." One particular story, which I just again find so encouraging and so hilarious at the same time, illustrates just how faithful God was to her. It all revolves around a banana. Now you say, my goodness gracious, Danny, how in the world could a story about a banana encourage any of us? Well, let me just read it and then you see. One day, Darlene pulled herself up to the window of her cell. She began watching some women who were in the courtyard. One woman's actions in particular intrigued her. The woman inched toward a fence covered with vines. And when she was close enough and the guard wasn't looking, a hand clutching a small bunch of bananas thrust them through the vines. And the woman grabbed the bananas, folded them into her clothes, and walked calmly back to another group of women unnoticed by the guards. Bananas, Darlene said. I began to crave bananas. I got down down on my knees and I said, Lord... I'm not asking you for a whole bunch like that woman has. I just want one banana. She looked up and pleaded, Lord, just one banana. And then she said, I began to think, how could God possibly get a banana to me? There was really no way it could happen. She said, I wasn't going to ask anyone to do it. And it was impossible for me to get one myself. And so she again prayed, Lord, I know there's no one here who could get a banana to me. There's no way for you to do it either. Please don't think I'm not thankful for the rice porridge that they give me every day. So I thought she had rice. Well, she was now suffering from dysentery. And so, because she had dysentery and uh, was literally on her way to dying, they gave her a porridge that they hoped would be more sustaining. Although she would discover often when the porridge arrived and she dug into it, she found in the porridge maggots. What a delicious deal, uh, meal for that. By the way, that will not be on any of the trucks outside, I promise you, uh, following chapel this morning. The morning after she saw the bananas, she had a surprise visitor. It was the camp commander from her previous camp, Mr. Yamachi. Uh, By the way, he had warmed to her following the death of her husband and her sharing of the gospel with him. When she saw him, she said it was like seeing an old friend. He immediately looked at her, turned away, and then looked back and said, "'You're very ill, aren't you?' "'Yes, sir, Mr. Yamachi, I am.' "'Well, I'm going back to the camp now. Do you have any word for the other women?' She said, yes, sir, I do. When you go back, tell them for me that I'm all right. I'm still trusting the Lord. They'll understand what I mean, and I believe you do too. Mr. Yamachi left and went and talked to the other officers. She realized as they walked away that she had not bowed to the men, and she began to be terrorized. Oh, Lord, they will now come back and beat me, she thought. Soon she heard the guard coming back, and she knew that he was coming for her. She struggled to her feet, stood ready to go to the interrogation room. The guard opened the door, walked in, and with a sweep of his hand, laid at her feet a whole stack of bananas. They're yours, he said, and they're all from Mr. Yamachi. She was stunned. She counted, 92 bananas." She said in her autobiography, in all of my spiritual experience, I've never known such shame before my God. I pushed the bananas into a corner and I wept before him. Lord, please forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to even get one banana for me. Look what you did. There are almost a hundred. She then writes, in the quiet of the shadowed cell, my Lord answered back within my heart, that's what I delight to do, the exceeding abundant above anything you may ask or think. And she writes, I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible to my God. Let me hasten number four. We can be confident that the Lord will sustain and strengthen us the psalm begins on a wonderfully high note I believe she. the text says that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and because I'm confident in the goodness of the Lord and because I'm confident that God is going to sustain my life if not in this life certainly in the life to come, then I can wait on the Lord. I can be strong and take heart and take courage. I can wait on the Lord. And I believe that if we were to unwrap that verse, we could say just very quickly, to wait on the Lord carries with it the idea of being patient and trusting in the Lord. Quickly then, as I move to close, how was it that Darlene Dibler-Rose was sustained by the Lord as she waited upon him all of the time in that prison camp? I just quickly note her life in terms of that. God indeed sustained and strengthened her when she was placed under house arrest by the Japanese at the age of 25. He sustained and strengthened her when she and her husband were separated into separate prison camps, never to see each other again in 1942. He sustained and strengthened her as she ate rats, tadpoles, dogs, runny oatmeal, and maggots, and other unimaginable foods. He sustained and strengthened her as she and other POWs were forced to present 60 Thousand dead flies a day to Mr. Yamachi because they bothered the pigs that they tended who were to be treated better than the POWs. God sustained and strengthened her through dengue fever, beriberi, malaria, cerebral malaria, dysentery, beatings and torture, attacks of rabid dogs, false charges of espionage, the promise of beheading, solitary confinement, allied bombings, and many other inhumane abuses. God sustained and strengthened her. When told of the death of her beloved husband and his own tortures and suffering, God sustained and strengthened her when she and the other POWs were finally released and she was allowed to visit the grave of her husband. At that time, she weighed all of 80 pounds. God sustained and strengthened her when he brought her home to America, but he kept the fire of missions burning in her soul. God sustained and strengthened her when he brought another missionary into her life, Gerald Rose, whom she would marry in 1948 and return with him to New Guinea in 1949. God sustained and strengthened her as she labored on the mission field of Papua New Guinea and in the outback of Australia for over 40 years, evangelizing, teaching, building landing strips, delivering babies, facing down headhunters, and loving them all to Jesus. No wonder she was so fond of quoting Charles Spurgeon, who said, and I quote, I can thank my God for every storm that has wrecked me on the rock called Jesus. Jesus. I conclude. On February the 24th, 2004, Darlene Dibler quietly passed away and entered into the presence of the king she so deeply loved and faithfully served. She was 87 years old. The Chattanooga, Tennessee newspaper recorded in her obituary, together Darlene and Jerry were used of God to bring hundreds of aborigines to the Lord. And they were instrumental in starting indigenous churches now pastored by natives. However, there's one particular person that came to Christ through her witness that stands out in my mind above all others. Following World War II, Mr. Yamachi was arrested and tried as a war criminal. And not surprisingly, because he'd beat a man to death, he was charged to die by hanging. Later, his sentence was commuted to life without parole and hard labor. And then later, in God's providence, it was commuted again. Darlene would learn after she had retired and returned to America that Mr. Yamachi had been heard on Japanese radio by fellow missionaries. They shared that listening to Mr. Yamachi, they heard him sharing nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Japanese people, testifying to his own cruelty in World War II, but also bearing witness because of the witness of American missionaries. He was now a different man and a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Who was the first person, as far as we know, to ever tell Mr. Yamachi? Jamachi, the gospel of Jesus Christ, best I can tell, it was Darlene Dibler on the very day that she discovered the death of her husband. All throughout her life, when sharing her story, Darlene would say, quote, I would do it all over again for my Savior. I would do it all over again for my Savior. We never know what God is going to do when we say to him, Lord, I will go anywhere with you no matter what the cost. But this much we do know from Psalm 27, he will be with you as he promises wherever you go. And so the question that continually goes before me, I put before you this morning, are you willing to go?